Well, good morning. I love this service in particular because we get to hear the children sing. And I don't know about you, but it warmed my heart. I, I, my heart, I'll tell you, my eyes just were filling up with tears a little bit looking at those children sing. And I was just thinking about how Jesus loves children. And um, one of the unique things this year about the children singing is that I had none of my kids in the program, which means I'm getting old. And um, um, I walked in this morning, I was like, oh, the kids are singing. Um, I'll tell you, what, what a blessing. And thank you to all the parents who are seeking to raise your kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and for all of our children's workers who invest in them each week. Well, here we are at the end of Malachi, and this will conclude our series through the book today. We're going to end uh, with chapter 3 into chapter 4, and you might be thinking, wow, you're going to cover all of chapter 4? Yes, it's only six verses. Fear not, as the angels said, right? Fear not. What I'd like to do is I'd like to read our text this morning, and when I finish with chapter 4, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you can respond, thanks be to God. Would you follow along, please, as I read? I'll begin Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse number 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking and mourning before the Lord of hosts. Now, we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet, on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together and then look into his word. I'd like to pray along with the psalmist from Psalm 84. Lord, 
as the psalmist once said, so we say this morning, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in your house, oh my God, than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For Lord, you are a sun and shield. You bestow favor and honor. No good thing do you withhold from those who walk uprightly. So Lord of hosts, bless those who trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, sometimes when I study the scriptures, um, a song will come to my mind. Have you ever had that happen? You're reading the Bible and um, all of a sudden some sort of piece of music comes to your mind. And this last week while I was studying this text, I had that experience. So I went looking for this particular piece and I discovered it wasn't on my playlist. It wasn't in my digital library. It was nowhere to be found on my phone. So instead, I had to go looking for a hymnal. Now some of you are like, what's that? I feel like this is show and tell this morning. This is a hymnal. For those of you who have never seen one. I, yeah. It's, it's kind of it's, it's like an antique, you know. It's... Um, it's a little bit like a payphone. Maybe you've heard of them. Dial-up internet, TVs where you have to turn a knob to change the channel. There's like three people in the room who remember this. This is a hymnal. So by my third hymnal, I found uh, this song that I was thinking of. And I, I don't know, maybe some of you in the room grew up this way, but I, I grew up in church with hymnals. And there's these chord structures all the way through, and they're designed to have someone sing the bass, someone sing tenor, alto, soprano, and there's these four parts that move all the way through. And so I grew up on rich hymnody, and I was thinking of this song, trying to find it, and by my third hymnal, in this red one, I found the song. It's entitled, When We See Christ. It was written in the 1940s by a woman named Esther Rusthoy. Listen to the first verse. I think you'll understand its connection with our text this morning. It goes like this. Oft times the day seems long, our trials hard to bear. We're tempted to complain, to murmur, and despair. But Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away all tears forever over on God's eternal day. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. I was thinking of those lyrics because they present a struggle that many people face. Life is hard, even for people who follow God. And sometimes we wonder, is it worth serving the Lord? Is it really worth living for him? 
especially in those days that seem long when trials are hard to bear, have you ever wondered, is it worth it all? If so, you can probably relate to our text this morning. The fact is, as this text opens, we come to realize that sometimes we have second thoughts about whether it's worth serving God. We wonder, we question, and we sometimes doubt it. Now notice the majority of the people of Israel in verses 14 and 15. They were having those doubts. Look at what they say in verse 14. It is vain to serve God. In other words, it's not worth it. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers, they're like, just look out there. Evildoers not only prosper, they put God to the test and nothing happens. They escape, it says in verse 15. You can see how these Israelites were having second thoughts about whether they should live for the Lord. Now, though many of us experience that, I don't want to necessarily normalize that. In other words, I don't want to say, oh, it's great just to go through life wondering, yeah, I don't know if it's worth it. Yeah, serving God, hmm, I'm not sure. I don't think that's really how he intends us to walk through life. And, and quite frankly, we need to look at the foundation of these people and realize why these feelings were coming about. Because I think that can help us. Like when we're struggling, you're having a day, maybe last week, maybe this morning, maybe tomorrow. When you're having a day where you're wondering, is it worth it? You might need to look inside because sometimes there are these contributing factors that are not good that are causing those feelings to arise. Notice first, these people who were doubting whether it was worth serving God, notice first that they were oblivious to their own sins. You see that in verse number 13. Look at verse 13. God says, your words have been hard against me. And how do they respond? How have we spoken against you? God accuses the people of hard words. It literally means forceful or insistent words. And then you can almost hear the people respond, what? I don't get it. What are you so worked up about, God? What's the big deal? You can see from verse 13, it's like they're blind to their habitual sins. I mean, think about the book of Malachi and We've been going through these different chapters. How many times has God given a word of correction only to be met with some lame rebuttal from spiritually dull people who continually don't get it? Do you remember? This, this goes all the way back to chapter one, verse two. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Or how about chapter one, verse six? O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Or how about chapter one, verse seven? By offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? Or how about chapter one, verse 12? 
You say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, oh, what weariness this is. Or how about chapter 2, verse 13? He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? Or chapter 3, verse 8, will man rob God, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Are you catching this pattern through the book of Malachi over and over and over again? God gives a word of correction and they are dull of hearing. They are oblivious to their own sin. And I would just suggest that when we have sin sitting in our hearts that we are blind to, we may be susceptible to questioning whether it's worth serving God at all. In other words, let me flip it around. If you're here this morning and you've struggled wondering if it's worth pursuing the Lord, if you've wondered whether it's worth giving him your life, one of the things you may want to do is just see if there is sin that's sitting in your heart. With these people, it's like their first response to God was disbelief, questioning, and contradiction. His words rolled off their back like water off a duck's back. They were unconscious when it came to their own sin. But not only that, look at the second thing I want to point out about these people who were doubting whether it was worth serving God. The second thing is they were self-centered. You see that in verse number 14. Look at how self-centered they are. <laughs> second half of verse 14. What's the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? In other words, what benefit is it to us to obey God? I mean, what have we gotten out of service to the Lord? Do you see how they've turned towards self-centeredness? What's in it for me, they're asking. Have these sacrifices really been worthwhile? What profit have we experienced? The people couldn't quantify the return on investment, and so they concluded that it was worthless. They weren't interested in God and his glory. They were interested in themselves and their rewards. This isn't advancing us, so what's the point? Have you ever approached your Christianity that way? Have you ever begun to think like, well, I don't know if I want to do this. I don't get much out of it. I don't know if I want to serve them. What do I get? And all of a sudden, we're in this really bad spot of self-centeredness. When you start viewing life through the lens of what's most comfortable, profitable, restful, for you, then you lose sight of God and you'll likely begin to question his ways. These people were oblivious to their sin. They were self-centered. And the final thing we see in this opening part of the text is that they were envious of the wicked. Notice verse number 15. They're envious of evildoers. They say this, now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. The Israelites had entered into this comparison game. They were comparing themselves with evil, wicked, proud people, and it seemed like life leaned in their favor. You can almost imagine these, these Israelites thinking to themselves, well, 
You know, evildoers seem to prosper, but not us. The arrogant seem to be blessed, but we're somehow left behind. And as they envied others, their joy slipped down the drain. I'm gonna tell you, friends, comparison is the enemy of contentment. And that's what was happening here with these people. They lost confidence in God. They became discontent and resentful, embittered, frustrated. They doubted God's character. They questioned his ways. And it was this huge, like these opening verses, it's just like this doom cycle. These people were spiritually blind, self-centered, engaged in foolish comparison. And it's almost as if James' words come to bear. A double-minded man is what? Unstable in all his ways. These people lost their stability. It's no surprise that they had second thoughts about serving the Lord. It's no wonder they were second-guessing God's character. But when this happens, what should we do? And if we find ourselves in a place of having second thoughts about serving the Lord, what should we do? Well, I want to suggest at that point, what you really need is you need a second opinion. If your heart starts saying something to you like, I don't know if it's worth it. Boy, you've put a whole lot in, but haven't been getting much out. Wow, you seem to sacrifice and give, but not much is coming back your way. When your heart starts telling you those lies, you need a second opinion from God. Perhaps at some point in your life, you've had a health concern and you visit your provider, but you have a diagnosis. I mean, they diagnose you with something that's so serious or they prescribe some sort of treatment that's so surprising. You decide to get a second opinion. You want another voice to speak into this matter. My friends, when we have doubts about whether living for God is worth it, we need to get a second opinion. Notice how that comes to bear in verse number 16 in our text. In verse number 16, we see a remnant of the people speaking up in disagreement with those who were saying that it was vain to serve God. They disagree. These God-fearers have fixed their eyes on the Lord. Their hearts are devoted to him. And they're saying something different. They come to realize, verse number 18, take a look at verse 18. They come to realize that there is a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Remember, their hearts were telling them a lie, like, it's not worth serving God. Nothing happens to the wicked. Why not be wicked? The righteous don't benefit. It doesn't matter anymore. But in verse number 18, the second opinion says, no, there is a distinction. Serving God does matter. Living in a way that pleases him counts. It is not vain to fear the Lord. It is not a waste of your life. This is what the second opinion is shouting out to these people. Those who fear God and esteem his name are known and acknowledged by God. He remembers you. Like I think sometimes we go about our life, we're trying to serve the Lord, we're seeking to be faithful, and we find ourselves on E, empty. And it's in those moments when we're drained and tired and we've been giving, 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 and we're wondering in that moment, 
is anybody going to give something back? It's in that moment we have to be reassured. No, God sees you. He knows you. He remembers you. We have different ways of remembering things. I mean, what's, what's your way? How do you remember things? I had a phase in my life where I would write, you know, really important things right here. Now, I did it on the top of the hand because this part just kind of rubbed off. So I learned. I mean, I was smart. If you're going to remember something, put it here. But then the problem of washing your hands and then it smears and then you're trying to remember what those last two letters that remain really were trying to remind you of. You know, and then I stepped up to an iPhone. You've got the Reminders app. I mean, I don't know. What do you do to remember? Pastor John, I don't know if you know this or not, he has a little black book he carries around in his back pocket. We're in a meeting. We're talking. All of a sudden, John will take out this little black book, jot down. This is his little note. He's, do you have it, John? Do you have it? There, there it is. It, I'm telling the truth. It's there. He's got it. You're going to tell him something. He's going to write it down. He's going to remember. We have, we have a way of remembering. What I love about this text is in verse number 16, it says this, a book of remembrance was written before God of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Like you pour yourself out to the Lord. You give of yourself for his people. You make sacrifices so that God's name and fame can advance and you find yourself on empty and you're wondering if it's worth it and he says, I have a book of remembrance and your name's in it and I won't forget. I don't know about you, but that is such a comfort. It will be worth it all. You see that? Because he remembers it all. The names are written in this book. And the Lord remembers those who are his and those who live for him. You know, perhaps like the Lamb's book of life that you read about in Revelation 20, verse 15. If you live for God, you're not going to be overlooked. I love a few of these phrases. I want to highlight them. Verse number 17. They shall be mine. I, I read be mine. I'm thinking like Valentine's Day, his love. Be mine. These people who fear me and esteem my name, these people who live for me and serve me, there is a distinguishable difference between the wicked and the righteous, and I will remember them. They will be mine, says the Lord. And not only that, he says, verse 17, they will be my treasured, look at that little phrase, treasured possession. And think about that for a minute. You might be suffering or struggling as you seek to live out your faith. You may be wondering if it's worth it. Know this. In the end, you are the Lord's treasured possession. That phrase, treasured possession, it referred to the jewels that a king would have as his own. Now, the whole kingdom was his. But there were some things that were personally prized by him. I mean, I just want you to think about all the things you own. You've got all these things. You've got like that weird spatula with the handle that's burnt because you left it in the pan for too long. But you keep it because you don't want to buy another one. And Yeah, I mean, that's yours. You own it, right? But let me tell you something. If the house is on fire, you're not running to the kitchen drawer to make sure you rescue that spatula. Let it go. 
let it go. There's a great many things you own, but only a few of them are treasured possessions. Only a few. And do you know what he says? He says, you are his treasured possession. You, you, you live your life for him. You serve him with all you have and all you are. And you have this confidence. You are his treasured possession. You fear the Lord. You esteem his name. You are treasured in his sight. There is a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who don't, verse 18. And the grumblers and the doubters, verses 14 and 15, those who speak insolent words against God, they're wrong. Now at this point in the text, we've learned that when we're struggling with second thoughts about whether it's worth serving God, we need to receive a second opinion. But notice, notice we have to also remember the second coming. So if you have these doubts arise, not only do you need to hear God's opinion, but you have to remember he's coming again. Remember the second coming. When doubts creep in about the worth of living for God, stop thinking about the here and now and start thinking about the then and there. And we're going to see that unfold in this text, but I want you to hear how Paul puts it. Paul puts it this way. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 18. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. My friends, when the wicked seem to prosper and the righteous are left to suffer, when evil people taunt God and they seem to get away with it, when our lives feel like they're being washed away and our joy is eroding from underneath us, when we live for God, but somehow reap a harvest of difficulty, remember the second coming. There is going to be a day when Christ returns and all that's wrong will be made right. All that's off will be corrected. The wicked will be punished and the righteous will be vindicated. Look at chapter four, verse one. For behold, or you could put the word for surely, Surely the day is coming. Malachi is saying a day of reckoning is on its way. I've told some of you this story before, but when I was a kid, my brothers and I used to fish at the Erie Canal. And it was, uh, it's like this historic canal up in New York State. It's old and run down now, but as kids, we would ride our bikes there and we would fish in this dirty little canal. We would catch these sunfish, always had a great time. But this one particular day, we rode our bikes there. We're fishing on the edge of the canal and these, these bigger boys came by and they thought it would be fun to harass us. And so I want you to picture these freckle-faced vixens coming over and giving us a hard time. I'm there with my little homeschool haircut, bangs all messed up in front, big glasses, scared to death. 
they thought, oh, this will be fun. And so these boys, one by one, they took my bike and my two brothers' bikes, and one by one, they threw them into the canal, just laughing the whole time. While they laughed, though, they didn't realize that my older brother took off towards home. So I'm there with my younger brother. We're watching like dumbfounded. Not, we can't do anything. These boys are bigger than us. They throw our bikes into the canal and they're having a good time. <laughs> Until all of a sudden this white little Datsun truck comes flying up and here's my dad in his Datsun. He opens the door, hops out and he's torqued. But my dad's only five foot six. He's a but he had like old man power that day. You know what I mean? I mean, he was fuming mad. And those boys were scared. I mean, and I loved it. I mean, I loved it. <laughs> Big smile on my face. And he made them wade down into the muddy water of that canal and one by one fetch our bikes back. And I wanted to give them a gesture of just... So I went like this <laughs> at them. Gotcha. You know, there's something about that that just, like, poetic justice. And it feels good, you know, it feels good. You may suffer for a moment, but one day he's coming back. I mean, that's chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, surely the day is coming. And for the wicked, they will experience devastation, verse 1. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. Now, compare verse 1 back to chapter 3, verse 15. Do you remember there? They're saying the arrogant are blessed. They're saying that the evildoers are going to prosper. No, they won't. The truth is, the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming that will set ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. In other words, they are going to be completely and utterly devastated. The self-sufficient or arrogant, those who resolve to live godless lives, evildoers, they may have a season of fun and games, but in the end, they're going to be consumed like chaff in a furnace. The text says that they'll be reduced, verse number three, They'll be reduced to ashes and the righteous will tread them underfoot in the day of the Lord. Swift, total judgment. One day the laughter will end, the temporal wealth will be gone, the game will be over, and it will be a day of reckoning for the wicked. The wicked will be devastated, but on the other hand, those who fear the Lord and esteem his name will be delivered. Do you see it in verse two? Verse two, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. There's some interesting kind of ancient Near Eastern imagery that's being used here. It's being used to describe God's preservation of the righteous, his blessing upon those who serve him. It's this phrase, sun of righteousness. Now, this sun of righteousness was, uh, was ancient iconography there are these images of a sun disk with rays of light emanating from the sun that look like wings. The sun of righteousness with healing in his wings. And it's as if God is saying, do you want to know who the real sun of righteousness is? Who brings healing? It's me. 
Do you want to know where real guardianship and blessing comes from? It's me. Do you want to know where the rays of my grace are going to extend? It's going to extend across the whole earth. I will bring healing to everything I touch. I will make all things new. That's what the righteous have to look forward to. When we're struggling through trials, when we're watching the wicked prosper, we need to remember Christ's return. That one day all of the waiting and the weeping will be over. And joy will come in the morning. I love the picture here in verse two. Do you see in verse two? He's trying to describe what it's gonna be like when the son of righteousness rises and brings healing upon those who fear his, his name, those who serve him with their lives. When the son of righteousness rise, rises, when there's healing in his wings and it rescues and preserves the righteous, when it blesses them, he says, then they're gonna be like these calves. Look verse two, you'll go out leaping like calves from the stall. And this is what I want, I want you to picture. I want you to picture these cows that are all pent up for the winter. They're in this small barn, close quarters, crammed spaces, but then the, win the winter snow melts and the weather warms and fresh green grass pushes up through the dirt and finally the farmer lets the cows out of the barn. And there's a word for them kind of bouncing. It's called gambling. These cows kind of bounce and skip and hop. And he says, that's the sort of joy you are going to experience when the son of righteousness with healing in his wings blesses you in the last day. My friends, the freedom and delight that we will have makes it worth it. The stuff we are suffering now look forward to that day when there's final freedom and blessing and preservation that comes from God. Now here in this text, we're faced with this question, is it worth serving the Lord? Well, receive God's second opinion. Think about Christ's second coming. But what if you find yourself on the wrong side of things this morning? I mean, what if you're not a God-fearer? What if you haven't esteemed his name? Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't served God with your life. Maybe you're, you're not really struggling. Is it worth serving God? You've never served him at all. You've been like the proud or the arrogant ones mentioned at the beginning of the text. If that's you this morning, then count it all grace that we have this last section in chapter four. You see, in these last couple verses, it says we need to respond to a second chance. If you're here this morning, you get a second chance. You say, what second chance? Well, look at verses four through six. In those verses, we, are, we encounter two important historical figures. Do you see in verse four, the figure that's highlighted? It's Moses. And then in verse five, who is it? It's Elijah. The Lord is using them as reference points to call rebels to repentance. In terms of Moses, verse four, think about God's word, how God's word was delivered to Moses on the mountain. Verse four, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. In other words, go to the word and do what it says. If you're here this morning and you have not served the Lord with your life, 
if you are better identified as those who are arrogant and proud, the godless ones, then you are given a second chance. And that second chance is pointing you back to the word. Go to the word, do what it says, listen to the word of God, because faith comes by hearing. My friends, God could destroy sinners immediately, but instead he issues a second chance for rebels like us by giving us an opportunity to heed his word. Listen to the word. But then the second figure that we have in this text in verse five is Elijah. And Elijah reminds us that we need to prepare for his coming. Elijah is a preparatory figure. Verse number five, he's, he's the one that calls people to repent. Verse five, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. My friend, the Lord doesn't want you destroyed. He wants you to be prepared. This Elijah that Malachi speaks of here is the same messenger that was spoken of in chapter three, verse one. And if you remember our text there, it's a type, Elijah is a type of one who would come later who would prepare the way of the Lord. And that is John the Baptist, some 400 years later. We read about it in Matthew 11. This is he of whom it is written in Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And if you are willing to accept it, this is what Jesus says, if you're willing to accept it, John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come. In other words, the fulfillment of Malachi chapter four, verse five, is the coming of John the Baptist who came to prepare the way of the Lord. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah and he called people to repent. It's like they have a second chance. Repent. Prepare yourselves for the coming of Christ. So turn from your sin and trust God's word. Friends, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son, the living word, to die in the place of sinners so that all who believe in him won't be destroyed but rather will find eternal deliverance. This second chance ultimately comes through Jesus. He came that first Christmas some 2,000 years ago, and Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, said this in Luke chapter 1, verse 78. Listen to what Zechariah says about baby Jesus. He says this, The sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadows of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Jesus comes like the sunrise or the sun of righteousness. He came long ago so that he might deliver people from darkness and death. But I think it's interesting how though Moses and Elijah are mentioned at the end of the Old Testament, they're actually going to fade into the background when Christ comes on the scene. You see this in Matthew chapter 19, verses two through five. And Jesus, listen to what it says, and Jesus was transfigured before them and his face shone like the what? The sun. Hmm, that's interesting. His clothes became white as light and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. 
if you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. My friends, listen to his word. Get prepared for his coming. The son of righteousness came once to give you a second chance. But when he comes again, it will be too late. Second thoughts, second opinions, second coming, second chance. Lots of seconds. There may not be a third. So listen to the word and get prepared today. Receive Christ this Christmas and experience the healing that you've been longing for. Let's pray together. Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts to receive the son of righteousness today. You are a son and shield. You bestow grace and glory. No good thing do you withhold from those who walk uprightly. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. And so help us to be people who trust in you. People who listen to your word and get prepared for your coming. I wonder with your heads bowed and eyes closed if some of you here have been struggling with whether it's worth serving God. Maybe you've grown tired. Maybe your suffering has persisted. The sacrifice seems unending. Maybe you're questioning things. Today, my friend, just listen to God's voice. There is a distinction between those who fear him and those who don't. And at his second coming, all will be set right. Don't grow weary in doing good. In due season, you'll reap if you don't faint. So don't lose heart, my friends. Jesus is coming again. Maybe the reason you've been questioning God, however, has been because your spiritual foundation is shaky. Have you been ignoring sin in your life? Have you been self-centered in your pursuits? Have you been envious of the world? Those things can cause you to be double-minded about God. If so, just repent of those things and draw near to the Lord today. Perhaps the thought of Christ's return this morning scares some of you. Maybe you're on the wrong side of things. Oh, my friend, if that's you, don't mistake his patience for his ignorance. He is coming again. But today is a second chance. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Instead, turn from your sin and trust Christ with your life. Lord, this Christmas, we give thanks for the gift of your son, Jesus. We give thanks he's the son of righteousness with healing. And so we look to you. We ask that you would heal our hearts, comfort us, and encourage us in this season. Give us confidence. It is worth serving you with our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.